Okay, so <clears throat> we are uh, this first week of the retreat. We are going through the foundations of mindfulness and uh, unfolding them, unfolding instructions, and, and uh, developing them. And so today, I want to go into the second foundation, which is Vedana. <coughs> Vedana. V e d a n a. But actually, before before I start on the sort of the, the meat and the specifics of that, I want to take two two steps backwards and put it in a uh, a much bigger context, much bigger. So this, well, these words, freedom, liberation. What does that mean? What does it mean to you? Could go into this a lot, and I, I actually really feel like it, so I'm trying to hold myself back from saying <laughs> But when I think about it right now, when I think about it, actually, it seems to me there are different kinds of freedom. There are different kinds of liberation. Uh, even putting aside for now, which we can't really, but putting aside for now social, political, economic freedoms, which most people in this room just take for granted. Just talking about uh, the more internal freedoms, personal freedom. Even in that realm alone, if we just artificially separate it, there are different kinds of freedom, it seems to me. So, different areas or aspects of freedom. So what does it mean? What does it mean, for instance, to be free in in one's relationship to money? What does it fully? What, what what would that even mean? What would it look like? What would it mean? What would it look like? What would it be to be free in in one's relationship to sexuality? I don't, I don't particularly think there are any easy or straightforward or simple answers to all this. Perhaps it's it's a very much an individual exploration for each of us, an unfoldment rather than arriving at some something. And I don't know to explore. It's alive. It's ongoing. To be free socially in one's interactions with others, in what one presents to the world. What does that mean? What does it mean to be free in aspects of how we are perhaps in intimate relationship? And whether we're in and out uh, of active sexuality, of active intimate relationship, whatever. What does that mean? Uh, Free with our creativity. What's that? Can you hear okay at the back? Is that a no? It's a yes. Can you say something? Thank you. Um, uh, What does it mean to be free in my creative expression as a human being? Free to pour that out, who I am and what I want to say and what I want to express, what I want to sing. What does that mean? Am I a free thinker? Is my inquiry free? What does it mean? What, what does all that mean? So in a way, you know, we could say these are all obviously connected, but in a way somewhat separate branches of freedom of a tree. There are branches. 
Now, as a human being, I have, I have the, the freedom to actually inquire into all that, to explore into all that. And I could uh, approach a branch. I could look at uh, one of those aspects that I talked about and just direct my inquiry into the freedom around that, address it at that level. And I could also address my inquiry at a more, uh, we could say, root level. In other words, are there, are there kinds of freedom, kinds of understanding, that when I penetrate them, the freedom that they open up is more at the root level of the tree and dresses the whole tree? Do you understand what I mean? I think just now, where I am in, in my practice, I think both are important. Both. And we might have this or that view from whatever background we've had, psychotherapy or this tradition or that tradition or whatever. You just do this, or no, it's important to do this. Maybe both are true. Maybe both are true. So both the branches and the roots... Why am I going into all that? Because this, this aspect of Vedana is actually has the possibility, has a very strong potentiality of being a root, uh, a root uh, investigation into the roots of freedom, a root freedom. In other words, there's something here that will, that will unfold widely in that tree. This makes sense. It's not saying, I'm, I'm actually not saying, I think both of them, I'm not saying that just looking at Vedana will unfold everything. I'm not saying that. Nor is it the case that I need to address every branch of this tree. Okay. So, then we have these four foundations of mindfulness, and we're going through them this week. Sometimes when we unfold them, and we unfold them usually within a week, and we sort of zip through a morning on each and 15 minutes, and there it is, and kind of there you have it. And, and it's a lot to take in. It, for most people, it's a lot to take in. So oftentimes what happens is the message that comes across, understandably, is sort of just try and generally be present. Just try and generally be aware to your experience, to the present moment. Generally mindful and including in that awareness uh, some of these aspects that we touch upon, right? including a sort of general awareness of Vedana or a little bit. You can explore it a little bit. And that, of course, is, is beautiful. Just to be with one's unfolding experience, be open to that and uh, uh, being with everything. So it's a beautiful way of practicing. <clears throat> But that alone, lovely and beautiful and important as it is, probably won't reveal the totality of the insights, the depth of the insights that's possible if I have a slightly different orientation to practice at times, which is more taking these foundations of mindfulness as kind of threads or avenues and staying with a particular one and pulling on a thread, following it, following an avenue and seeing where it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So rather than just being aware of everything and kind of aware of the four foundations, etc., actually taking one and following it. 
uh, then the possibility, as I said, of this area of Vedana unfolding a very particular kind of liberation, a very root kind of liberation, not necessarily a total liberation, but a very particular deep root liberation, if I can take it as a theme, or if I, if I have the, the patience and the interest and the dedication to take it as a theme. <clears throat> One of the meanings of, we say, satipatthana, that's what usually translates as foundations of mindfulness. Patana also means something that's, uh, the root meaning is from, means something like to station, to station, to stay somewhere. So it's a station for my mindfulness. I station the mindfulness, station the awareness on the Vedana and explore it. Or I station the awareness on the body or, or something else and explore. Stay with it. I take it as a theme, to, to use the Buddha's words. So there's different kinds of freedom and there's different ways of practicing. And it's all good. It's all wonderful. It's all wonderful. But, but to kind of draw the fullness, the, the fullness and the fullness of depth out of our life of practice, it might be good to be aware that there are different kinds of freedom, different ways of practicing, and that we can move between them consciously. So I'm going to go into Vedana. We'll go into Vedana this morning. And just to say, you know, it is one avenue. So it might feel like this has very little to do with what I'm exploring on this retreat. And that's fine. You can file it for later. File it for later. Just leave it. Or it may be that you're interested in Vedana. And and this is difficult because there's so many people here. Some of you have a lot of experience exploring Vedana. And some just a little bit. And some none at all. But might be interested in it. So I'm going to try and kind of go through uh, sort of in a, in a gradient, level by level, and just, if you're interested in Vedana, see where you're at, what you already know, and what the pitch is that you can pick up and take a little bit further. <clears throat> so this word Vedana, um, second foundation of mindfulness. It usually gets translated as feeling, but that's a little bit problematic as a translation because in English, the word feeling, tend, we tend to use it to mean emotion. So what, what are you feeling? I'm feeling sad or happy or uh, jealous or whatever it is. It's an emotion. <clears throat> a better translation for Vedana is something like feeling tone or sensation even. Sensation is quite a good word. And it's really referring to something very, very simple and very, very specific in a way much simpler than the level of emotion. There are, it's said, there are three kinds of feeling tone, three kinds of Vedana, better to keep it in the Pali, three kinds of Vedana. Uh, There's pleasant Vedana, unpleasant Vedana, and what's called neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So what's this saying? It's basically saying that All moments, all moments of our life, all moments of our experience, in all the senses, inner experience and outer experience, all moments have with them a kind of tone in the texture of the experience that they're felt as either pleasant or unpleasant or kind of in between. Sometimes people call that neutral. So, for example, you're meditating one day in a sitting, and the breath uh, may feel very constricted or stuck somewhere or tight. Well, the, the Vedana of the breath at that point is unpleasant. It's unpleasant. 
Or another time, maybe even later in the same sitting, uh, the breath, something opens and the breath feels lovely, silky smooth, subtle, beautiful and open. The breath feels pleasant. There's a pleasant Vedana there. And similarly in the body, the body can feel tight or achy or constricted or much more open, uh, enjoyable, light, uh, pleasant. Uh, Take a step outside on a day like today and maybe the coolness of the air, maybe it feels pleasant if we feel a little overwarm or maybe it feels unpleasant if we feel already cold. Take a step, each step we take. If I just put my hand on the carpet right now, that's actually subtly pleasant right now for me. Just, just, some of it's quite subtle. Uh, lunchtime's coming up. You put a morsel of food into the mouth and there's an explosion of taste. And perhaps there's pleasantness there, right there, in, woven into the experience. <clears throat> or these lovely uh, rooks that we have. Some people love them, some people hate them. What's the sound of their song, if you can call it a song? What's the sound? Is, is, it, is it pleasant or unpleasant? Or does it change at different times? If I had very long fingernails and there was a blackboard here and I scraped my, <laughs> scraped my fingernails down, how would that be? <laughs> uh, um, any mind object, a thought... I'm such a failure, I really can't meditate. That thought has a Vedna, it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be unpleasant. Uh, or an imagination, a daydream, or a memory. It can have a pleasant memory or, or an unpleasant, all of this. An emotion. <clears throat> so I might have quite a complex emotion going on. Um, but within that, there is part of the emotion is the texture of whether it's felt as pleasant or unpleasant or in between. When we, when we first hear that, or even long after we first hear it, we can say, well, okay, but it doesn't seem that significant. It doesn't seem like it's not like earth-shaking or anything like that. <clears throat> Actually, when I first heard it, and maybe some of you had the same reaction, I didn't like it at all. I really didn't like it as a teaching. I thought it sounded incredibly dry, <clears throat> uh, nitpicky, reductionistic, uh, small-minded, Uh, I felt like it was dismissive of the juiciness we have as human beings, of of the totality, of the richness, of our heartfulness, of the depth and fullness of our emotional life. I really didn't like it at all. Uh, It took me... I'm still working on (laughs) it. It took me a while, but... um, don't you realize it's not denying our richness, this teaching. It's a particular strategy. It's not denying our complexity... Rather, it's just one way. It's just one way of practicing, one way of looking at something that has the power to simplify, to simplify what's going on for us and simplify our experience and our relationship with experience. So it's not saying that's what we are or anything like that or denying anything else. It's just a, a tool, a way of looking that can has the power to simplify and through that simplification to reduce suffering and oftentimes drastically. So it's a tool. And, 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 and. And if I take this thread that I was talking about, this theme, this stationing, if I really take it deep, 
it has a power much greater even than that. It can reveal uh, an awesome mystery, an awesome truth about existence. Unimaginable uh, uh, turning upside down of our understanding of, of the nature of reality. And, and with that, bring a much more profound sense of freedom. So these two kind of levels I want to go into today. And the Buddha said, to quote the Buddha, when these Vedana are understood, when they're understood, there is nothing further for a, a disciple of the noble ones, a practitioner for the, uh, to do. There's nothing further to do when you've understood this. That's true, he said that about a lot of other stuff too. But he's saying something. What does it mean? I understand. Oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Pleasant, unpleasant, kind of in between. Does that mean to understand it? No, there's much more here, obviously. So at first, and in my experience teaching sort of shorter retreats, seven days and, and shorter, sometimes when we talk about the Vedan instructions, sometimes then you have groups, etc. Because I don't really get this. I don't really get it. It doesn't make sense to me, this teaching of Vedana. Or the opposite. It seems really obvious at first. It seems really obvious, like there's nothing much more to say about it. But there is much more here than meets the eye. Much more. And as the investigation goes deeper and becomes more subtle, uh, much more gets revealed. So where to start with this? Where to start? <clears throat> First thing is to actually get familiar with this level of experience. Familiar with noticing Vedana and becoming sensitive to Vedana, sensitive to that dimension, that level, that aspect of experience. So sometimes it's extremely obvious. You're walking and you stub your toe and you've got no shoes on and that's clearly an unpleasant Vedana. It's not, there's nothing very subtle about that. But a lot of Vedana is really quite subtle. It's really quite subtle. So just look at the carpet right now. What's the Vedana? What if you take your attention to the light, the sunlight, coming through the window on the curtains? So the Vedana texture of those kind of experiences is much more subtle than stubbing the toe, obviously. But every moment has a Vedana. And so one, one piece here is to actually just really say, I'm really interested in this Vedana, really looking for it, and looking for it in all the places where I wouldn't actually even notice. Really developing my sensitivity, uh, the, the subtlety of my attention to pick up on this texture of experience. So spending time doing, exploring that dimension. And people are different. You know, some people are very systematic. So they say, and this is totally fine, they say, right, I've got six senses, let me just spend a sitting or a day uh, or whatever exploring the body sense and the Vedana coming and going in the body. I'll just station my awareness at the body and notice Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, coming and going. And really get sensitive to all the subtlety, all the richness there or some other sense, the sight, or whatever. Uh, other people, it's just a more general exploration, whatever. You might find that you have favorite senses, or senses where it's much easier to notice the Vedana than others. All of that's fine. 
you may find as you begin to explore this that to notice unpleasant Vedana, and people often notice this, at first unpleasant Vedana seem to stand out more. They seem to be what we notice more when we explore our experience more. Why is that? Why would that be? I'll leave that for you. What do we notice as we begin? There's a lot to notice as we begin this exploration. Very rich. First thing we notice is actually it's not really true. Not really true that what the Buddha said, that there are really three Vedana. Other times he, he said that's not actually true. It's not really true that there is something called pleasant Vedana and it's a kind of block of pleasant and there's a block of unpleasant and there's a block in between. Sometimes it just feels like there's pleasant and unpleasant and then sort of not particularly that pleasant or particularly unpleasant. It's more like, or sometimes it's just more like one spectrum. So it could be three, could be two, could be one. But there's more subtlety here. Another thing we might notice, and important to notice, is that the Vedana is not in the object. It's not in the object. It's in the moment of experience. So that's very important insight. It's not that this object necessarily, automatically has this unpleasant Vedana or pleasant Vedana. Just a little bit of investigation will reveal that. I love uh, chocolate something or other. (laughs) Well, is it the case that all the time it's pleasant? Or looking out today's a lovely day, looking out and you might be one of those completely grey days. And I look out and the sight of of all that grey cloud and it's just unpleasant in the sight. Another day, maybe I'm in a very different mood. I feel cosy inside or warm. I don't feel a sense of lack or disconnection or depression. One looks out and the very same... uh, Impulse, uh, stimulus, gives a different Vedana. So, why is it different at different times? This is the beginning of a very deep exploration. There's all kinds of levels to it. Why is it different at different times, the same thing? And if I explore the Vedana, what what I really want to get into, I really want to uh, start to unpack, is the reactions and the responses to, to Vedana. So typically, typically, what we'll notice is that when there is something pleasant, we the typical sort of unconscious reaction, sometimes even conscious, is to grasp it, to try and hold on to it, to try and keep it, or to chase after chase after the pleasant. That's the typical reaction. And the typical reaction to unpleasant is to want to get rid of it. Well, I say typical because uh, it's even that much isn't always the case. And it's quite possible, and some people already in the interviews or people who've been here for a while reporting, as the concentration gets deeper, quite some pleasantness opening up in the body. We call it PT, PT, this, these uh, waves or uh, field of, of pleasant energy, pleasant sensation in the body very pleasant, sometimes so pleasant that a person finds himself resistant to it. So a very untypical reaction to the pleasant. So it's not totally set in stone. But we want to get 
as much as we want to get familiar with the Vedana, we want to get familiar with the reactions, familiar with the responses. So how do I notice when there's aversion going on? How do, what tells me, for instance, aversion or grasping, what tells me that there's aversion going on? Some things in my experience, I'm having my day, doing whatever I'm doing, meditating, not meditating. How do I know when there's aversion going on? What's telling me? This is really important. I need to get really familiar with the cues of what it feels like to feel aversive or grasping. Really, really key. What does it feel like to be aversive? What tells me? And again, if I go into it, if I really pay attention, what I notice is there's a spectrum, as often in the Dharma. There's a real spectrum. So sometimes uh, the mind is screaming, I hate this, get me out of here, this is terrible, it cannot be, it must go. Or I need that, I must have it. I absolutely, I'll die if I don't have it. It's very strong, the language in thought we notice the, the presence of grasping or aversion through thought. It's clear. The mind is screaming. Sometimes it's uh, more, more uh, gentle in, in the words it uses, not so loud. But sometimes there's the presence of aversion or grasping without any thinking. There's no thinking going on. The mind is at a much uh, more calm, more subtle level, and there's still aversion and clinging uh, and grasping present. How am I going to notice that? What tells me? First thing that will tell me is tension in the body. Now again, that could be very strong. I could have my shoulders up near my ears, really tensed in relationship to maybe some unpleasant pain somewhere. could be very subtle the way tension just creeps into the, the, the muscular skeletal system. Just very subtle. The body is tensing and it's telling me something. The body is telling me something. It's telling me that there's the presence of clinging, of aversion or grasping. The body is sometimes more truthful than the mind. And I might notice it here or there in the body, the tension. So it's my friend. Maybe I'm even quieter than that. How am I going to notice the presence of subtle aversion or clinging? Maybe, something even really deep, the whole body sense has got very amorphous. It's just a kind of field of energy, very lovely. And yet, into that field of energy, or around that field of energy, there's a slight sense of contraction. Something's just contracting in the sense of the body. It's telling me. There's aversion, clinging, grasping, present. Subtle. Sometimes, really deep, even that isn't there. The whole thing's just very still, very spacious. How am I going to know? How am I going to know? What's going to tell me? The presence of aversion or clinging. It's the sense of the space of awareness, which might feel very expansive, has just cramped a little bit. It's just cramped. It's telling me there's aversion or clinging present. So I have to get, I have to, in a way, to explore my reactions is to explore that whole spectrum and get sensitive to the whole spectrum. And what's a typical reaction when things are neutral, when so-called neither pleasant or unpleasant? What happens then? Well, there's different possibilities people find. Different possibilities. So you might find, say, 
you're with something, whatever it is in the experience, and it feels neither particularly one or the other. And there's a sense of, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough for me. It's not enough stimulation. It's not enough to feed the ego or the self, to feed my sense of self. So into the neutral, in relationship to the neutral, comes a sense of lack. And with that lack, what happens? The neutral becomes unpleasant. The sense of lack, of not being enough, not being enough stimulation, not, not filling my hole inside, not being enough for my hunger, not being enough for my self-sense to be pumped up enough, will be that sense of lack. There's nothing in it for me. Lack goes to unpleasantness. The thing itself will turn unpleasant. Or, it's neutral, there's not much in it for me. We withdraw the sensitivity. We withdraw our sensitivity. When we withdraw our sensitivity from something, the thing will become boring. The experience will become boring. I cannot be bored and sensitive at the same time. It's impossible. So to be bored, I have to have withdrawn my sensitivity. Why do I withdraw my sensitivity? Out of the assumption that there's not enough here for me, not enough stimulation. So I withdraw the delicacy of my connection, the delicacy of my mindfulness, and the object becomes boring, the experience becomes boring, I become bored, and that becomes unpleasant. Or is neutral, and we just very quickly lose interest and we go off into a daydream, we space out. Maybe that goes pleasant, maybe it goes unpleasant. Or, if I stay with the neutral, I might find that because it has not much in it to stimulate, there's actually a kind of texture of kind of calmness in it. That's interesting. And if I can tune into that, I might see that the very lack of stimulation in it is actually quite pleasant in a subtle way. It's a different level of pleasantness. So there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot at the level of reactivity, uh, normal reactivity, uh, not to judge, not to judge, but to explore. This is normal functioning of consciousness, to explore. If I'm not aware of the Vedana in any moment, and if I'm not aware of the reactions that are going on, they will go on, and I will be pushed and pulled and propelled at the mercy, at the mercy of my unconscious reactions to Vedana. And this can go on most of the day, day in, day out. I'm at the mercy of something that I'm not even conscious of. Do Chase that. Go after this. No, no, that other one's better. This is unpleasant. I need to get away. All, all through the senses, inner experience, outer experience, pushed and pulled and flicked around at the mercy of something. Where is the freedom in that? One, one of my teacher's teachers uh, was a monk in Thailand, and um, this was, was one of my teachers. And um, this te- teacher of my teacher used to have, apparently, uh, for a time, he used to keep in his little monk's bag a little metal stick doll uh, stand up doll of a man sort of you know like a stick figure 
and a magnet. And he used to, when he was talking sometimes to a group of people, he used to take this little stick figure out, stand it up, and then uh, put the magnet here, and the stick figure would sort of topple over this way or go that way, and then put the magnet there, and it would go this way. And say, what are we, what are we being pulled and pushed by? What am I at the mercy of? Do I know it? Do I understand it? Am I free of it? When I go deeper into this investigation of Vedana and reaction, I actually see something else quite interesting, which is, firstly, I usually see that with a Vedana, as I said, some craving or clinging comes in response to it. But let's take something like craving for a cigarette or something else, some other addiction or compulsion or whatever it is. I begin to notice, if I can really I really investigate it, that actually the craving itself is unpleasant. So craving itself is an unpleasant experience. There's a kind of pressure to craving. I want this thing, I want it, I want it. It has, it has a pressure that's unpleasant in it. Unsatisfied craving. So not only is it an object, but also the movement of reactivity itself is unpleasant. Now this is very important, and particularly if I'm stuck in some kind of addictive or compulsive behavior, whatever that might be, because it's possible to see and feel the unpleasantness of the craving and feel that pressure and learn to tolerate it, to, to practice learning to tolerate it. And I really will see... I really will see. Craving has a natural curve to it. If I, just, if I can just watch craving, if I can just open, give it space and feel the pressure of it, feel that uncomfortable pressure, what does it do? It builds and it builds and it builds. Unfortunately, usually, at some times, which I can't take it anymore, we get hooked and off we go into whatever we think we need to do. But if I can just have some space, it builds and it builds and it builds and then it peaks and it decreases and it decreases and it decreases. It has a curve to it, a natural curve. If I don't, if I can give it space and I see that once and I see it twice and I see it three, five times and it loses its hold over me because I'm learning to tolerate the, the unpleasant pressure of craving. And that's a huge, huge gift to give to oneself. <clears throat> but I also notice, if, again, if I look deeply into all this, I look comprehensively into all this, I, I begin to notice all kinds of chain reactions, all kinds of chain reactions and feedback loops. There's a stimulus, whatever it is, maybe some taste or whatever it is. There's a reaction that comes to that, you know, trying to grasp at it or pushing it away or whatever. But very easily, thought comes in. And that starts mixing everything, adding to the reaction, doing something with the reaction. And thought very easily goes into papancha, this, this kind of proliferation of story and complexity and selfing. So some years ago, I just remembered this last night, I was trying to think of an example. Some years ago, I used to go to this um, retreat center near here, and they have a system where um, 
uh, teachers get called in twice a week, I think, and, and they get a list of questions. Sometimes you get the questions in advance, and sometimes you just get them when you're there. And this was one instance when I got the questions in advance, and I went over and sort of go through the questions. And I couldn't make head or tail of this question when it arrived to me in, in the email. It was something about porridge and spirituality. And I'm, what? <laughs> so I got there and, and uh, met this guy, and, and he was in really quite a state, really, really agitated. And so at this retreat center, like here, one of the offerings in the, in the morning is porridge. And he really, really, really got was upset about the porridge. Uh, it shouldn't be that there's porridge. There sh- it, why, why do all these retreat centers have <laughs> porridge? What's so spiritual about porridge? Good question. Um, <laughs> and why there needs to be more choice, etc., etc. It got in all this stuff about what he needs and a view views of spiritual traditions and did a whole big, uh, you know, mushrooming of of this whole thing. And so we had this conversation, which actually, if my memory serves me right, didn't actually turn out to be that, that helpful for him. So, But um, what happened? Sight of porridge, taste of porridge. You know, there were other things, so he could have put stuff into it. You know, it's not that bad when you mix. Um, <clears throat> come on. Uh, what happened? There's a sight, there's smell, there's taste. The initial, the initial Vedana. And then what's happening? All this thought, belief, and papancha about self and my relationship, my relationship with spiritual centers and spiritual... T- all that was coming in, and it starts feeding back on itself, and we've got a huge mess. Now, if he could have just put that aside, could have, and, just, and maybe there's some good questions in there, I don't know, but maybe if he could just stay with the taste, the smell, the sight of the porridge... Put a little jam or whatever else in nuts and stuff in there. Just stay with the taste. You don't even have to do that. But is it really such a big deal? Something's feeding back, causing such a great reaction. It's coming from an initial stimulus and the thought. What happens with the thought when it gets mixed in with the reactivity? Or a much simpler example. I'm sitting here, there's a pain in the body, pain in the knee. Very easy, the thought comes in. Probably cancer of my kneecap or, or whatever it is. And then what does that do to the whole thing, the whole experience? I had a very complex example, but I'll, I'll leave it. And it's, probably, it's probably too complex, although it's very interesting. I'll, I'll leave it for another time. All right, so given that thought and reactivity complicates things and tends to make things worse if it's unchecked, one possibility, one possibility is, can I learn, can I practice staying right at the Vedana? Could he, could he have stayed right at the taste, right at the taste, right there? It's just neutral. It's just neutral if it's porridge. Or it's just unpleasant, maybe the glutinous texture he didn't like, I don't know. It's just unpleasant. And just stayed right at the Vedana, kind of concentrating on the Vedana. When I do that, in a way, then I'm staying there and it's not taking the next step into the reactivity. Or perhaps I'm seeing the reactivity, but I'm staying at the Vedana and it's just dropping the reactivity over and over. I'm just staying right at the Vedana. That's a practice. That's a practice that we can develop. It's a kind of concentration. 
When we do, when we do that, we're not building reactivity. We're not letting the reactivity, the papancha, build. Uh, if you know about dependent origination, we're, we're kind, kind of stopping the tracks of dependent origination going into the next, the next phase. But what I'll find is, if I can stay at the Vedana, like that, the suffering gets less. The suffering gets out of experience uh, to some extent. If you know the simile of the second arrow, it's like there's not a second arrow in the first unpleasant arrow. There's not the second arrow of the reactivity and the thoughts and the papancha. Okay, so that's one possibility. It's very important. Uh, very present as a possibility. So here, the Vedana is a kind of given. So any experience, there's a Vedana to it, pleasant, unpleasant. It's a kind of given. That's what it is. But I can cut off the excess reactivity just by staying at the simple bare Vedana and staying there. Really powerful. But the Vedana there is a given a given reality. <clears throat> I should just throw in here, um, sometimes when you hear about papancha and, and the sort of cycles of what happens with Vedana and thought reactivity, it can be very easy to... It sounds like, okay, something happens, there's a stimulus, and then all this train of reactivity. And it sounds like I need to really catch that moment before it goes into the reactivity. Just stay at the contact. Catch the bare moment before it goes into the reactivity. And sometimes I'll be able to do that. Sometimes you'll be so mindful, so present, you actually catch the initial impulse and that's it. It hasn't gone. But then I need to do it again. If I miss that, though, all is not lost. If I miss that initial moment, I'm hooked. Here's the reactivity. Here's the suffering. Here's the papancha. It's not just the case that all that's available to me is a kind of post-mortem on suffering. That's not the case. I can actually, at any moment, at any time, tune in to the Vedana level of experience, no matter how crazy the mind has become no matter how crazy the madness, the papancha, the Vedana level of experience is always available to me as a simple level, as a simplifying level. Here's all this stuff. It's absolutely nuts. Let me go to the body and perhaps the, the unpleasant Vedana in the body that goes with all that craziness. And that's much simpler, and it will simplify out the whole experience. It will soften the whole reactivity that's happening. It will reveal something. Okay? So, I could stop there. We could stop there. Draw a line there. That's it. That's Vedana. That's what you need to explore. You need to see what it is, get used to it, watch these reactivities, see if you can cut the reactivity, stay at the Vedana, etc. And that's great and wonderful. And that usually takes a person you know, quite some time to unfold and fine. But occasionally, throughout the teachings of the Buddha, you come across quotes which seem to be pointing at something way beyond that. So, for example, this is a quote found. He's talking to a bunch of monks. Monks, when an ordinary uninstructed person makes the statement 
there is a bottomless chasm in the ocean. Everyone know what a chasm is? Yeah, it's a, it's a, in the ocean where the, in in the ocean floor where you have it, it goes suddenly down really deep, as if a bottomless chasm would be as if that had no bottom to it. That's called a chasm, and, and the bottom would, bottomless would be like it has no bottom. Yeah. So it makes the statement: there is a bottomless chasm in the ocean. The person makes that statement. He is talking about something that doesn't exist. Okay, but then listen to this. The word, this is the Buddha, the word bottomless chasm is actually a designation for painful bodily feeling. Isn't that a strange statement? So basically saying painful bodily feeling is unfindable, it doesn't exist, it's something that doesn't exist. And other times he says there are three kinds of Vedana and you should be very mindful of the three kinds of Vedana. Now, of course, it would be appropriate as you know, any uh, good teacher to be talking at different levels at different times. You have to, to be, to be skillful in the teaching. You have to be talking at different levels at different times. And it's appropriate to talk at one level and it's appropriate to talk at a much deeper level. So this is why I want to a little bit go into in, in the remaining part of the talk. If there is a whole deeper level to this, which there is, and which the Buddha is pointing to here and in other quotes, etc., what is it that I can do that would reveal for me that whole deeper level, that whole more mysterious level? It's actually something that doesn't exist. What does that mean? What does that mean? What would reveal that for me as a practitioner? There are actually many possibilities, and I'm only going to go into just just few at the most, many possibilities, but they share in common, going right back to the beginning of the talk, they share in common uh, the fact that they're only available if I station my inquiry on Vedana, station and follow a certain thread. They probably won't be so available if my practice is, is just the other kind of practice, just more open, more, more uh, probably. So just some... <clears throat> One possibility, once I've gotten used to Vedana and all that, and I've gotten used to seeing the reactivity and all that, and I can stay at the Vedana and all that, is I could say, okay, let me stay at Vedana, but be really interested in the fact of its impermanence. That's actually, I I know about Vedana now, what I'm really interested in is seeing its impermanence. Change, 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 change. Moment to moment, almost so fast I can barely keep track of it. If I do that, what should happen is the seeing of the change of it, the seeing of the impermanence, brings an organic letting go. That's the function of of seeing impermanence, of tuning into impermanence. I'm staying and stationing at Vedana, stationing at the impermanence, and change, 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 brings a kind of letting go, and, and freedom comes, a sense of freedom in the moment, in relationship to all this Vedana. It's changing so fast, I don't even have to think about it. It's changing so fast, there's no point hanging on. Freedom, a level of freedom. So that's great. That's really powerful. And yet there's more. Because if I'm just looking at change and seeing things coming and going, coming and going, I might, without even realizing it, draw the conclusion that things are changing randomly. 
It seems that way. Pleasant, unpleasant, it just comes and goes. It's all very random. And I just let it go. It's just random change, so I let go of it. It's great. But there's something uh, deeper there to unfold, to discover. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a sort of refrain after every one is a kind of like a chorus. And one of the lines is the co- in the chorus, he says about body, about each of the foundations of mindfulness, is to contemplate the samudaya is the Pali word, samudaya. Oftentimes that gets translated as the impermanence of something, the coming and going of something, uh, the fact that it arises and passes, etc., But actually what it means is why, how something arises and passes. This is saying something else like, we touched on this much earlier a little bit. Why is it, why is it that this Vedana is unpleasant? How did this unpleasant Vedana, how did this pleasant Vedana come to be? That why and how begins to unfold much more of this deeper mystery, much more of this deeper freedom. So it's not the case that things are random. Understanding how they come and go, why they come and go, unlocks something truly radical. So some of you are doing samatha practice, concentration practice. Part of this, part of developing concentration is actually learning to gather, to cultivate and enjoy pleasant feeling in the body. When it gets to a certain level, not at first, but when it, when it really starts to get humming, some pleasantness starts to come in the body. Because the body feels pleasant, the mind wants to stay there. The pleasantness is in the service of deepening the concentration. So then, a big part of deepening samatha practice, eventually becomes about discovering how can I gather, how can I increase pleasant feeling. So if I have a pleasant feeling in the body, how can I make it more pleasant? I'm I'm really asking, I'm really questioning how. Just go ahead. Um, If there's unpleasant Vedana, rather than just saying it's unpleasant Vedana, putting up with it or letting it be and just being mindful of it, how can it decrease? I'm actually interested in the dynamics of Vedana. How can I get it to decrease? And there's all kinds of interesting discoveries, a, a, a plethora, a whole host of interesting discoveries, really interesting discoveries to make about the magic of all this. So, for example, with the unpleasant, what happens? Here's some unpleasant sensation in the body. What happens? when the awareness is much more spacious around unpleasant Vedana, rather than getting sucked in to unpleasant Vedana? What happens to the degree of unpleasantness? It usually gets less unpleasant, and oftentimes a lot less unpleasant. Why? What's going on there? Why? These, these actually turn out to be really, really fundamentally important questions. It's not obvious at first. They turn out to be fundamentally important questions that have a, a real bearing on the nature of reality. It's not obvious at first. If I have an unpleasant, is it possible to actually turn that unpleasant into pleasant? The answer is yes, with a lot of practice. But how and why? 
are the different kinds of pleasant. Maybe a, a subtler pleasant is actually more fun than a sort of whoopee pleasant. So what we're doing there, whether it's with samatha practice or other kinds of practice, we're experimenting with different ways of seeing Vedana, different ways of conceiving Vedana, different ways of relating to Vedana. That's what insight is. We're experimenting with different ways of seeing, different ways of relating, ways of looking at something that free something up, that tell me something about that something. Of course, some those of you doing metta, this is also relevant because you, when there's the pleasantness of the metta, you also bring that pleasantness in to be part of the metta. You want to mix it in, include it very much. So insight practice, what, one way of saying what it really is, is a way of relating and seeing to, uh, a way of relating to and seeing phenomena, in this case, Vedana. And it, all those ways of seeing that turn out to be fruitful for insight, to go very deep, have one thing in common. All the deep ways of seeing, all the deep ways of relating to something, in terms of insight meditation at least, have one thing in common, and that is that they relax clinging. In one way or another, they relax clinging. So the question is, is is it possible, how is it possible to relax clinging in relationship to something? Let's go back to what I said earlier about how do I notice when there's clinging in the first place. I said, you might notice there's tension in the body. So the clinging causes the tension in the body. But it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing. If I then relax the tension in the body, it sometimes works backwards. This is often the case with causality, that it works both ways. Sometimes I relax the, the bodily tension that was caused by the clinging, and lo and behold, it relaxes the clinging. So that's one way of relaxing clinging, is, is going via the body and just keep relaxing the bodily manifestation of the clinging in, in the tension. Second possibility is I could also emphasize a kind of quality of allowing or welcoming and really put the emphasis of the practice on allowing and welcoming rather than on the precision of the mindfulness, for instance. Really on the allowing, really on the allowing. So this moment, whatever it is, if it's unpleasant, really allowing it. If it's pleasant, really allowing it. Really making sure that is the primary thread that I'm following. Really allowing, welcoming. Really as... 110% as possible accepting. Uh, I mentioned impermanence before. When when I contemplate impermanence, that's also a way, because things are impermanent, I see organically I should let go. That's what it should do. If it's not doing that, there's something a bit off balance in the way I'm doing it. It should be letting go of of the clinging, because it's impermanent. There's many more ways. I won't won't mention them now. They all have in common the factor that in this moment, in relationship to what's going on, I'm deliberately relaxing the clinging, deliberately I'm practicing relaxing clinging. And what do I see? What do I see if I do that? Well, I begin to see that the suffering of an experience with an experience is, let's say, 99.9% in the relationship with the experience. It becomes crystal clear 
the suffering with this or that thing is in the relationship with this or that thing. That, that needs to get really, really, really obvious. We say, this thing, this experience even, this pain even, we say, it's, this phenomenon, all phenomena, are empty of problem. By themselves, they cannot be a problem. They are empty of problem. Only in the relationship can there be a problem with a phenomenon. And I have to see that so often and so deeply that it's etched in, in, into the cells of my heart, into the cells of my body. I know it. I've seen it again and again and again. Seeing it once won't be enough. And that's true. We've glimpsed that even, even the other way we're talking about. Uh, just staying at Vedana, for instance, I was saying, well, you will see that. Just seeing that craving is unpleasant, again, you get craving is unpleasant when it's hooked into an object. Let's say, I will see that, as I said before, I will see that. I'm really filling out the truth in it. But what else will I see? If I really station myself this and I really pursue it, I'll start to see something uh, much more mysterious. The Vedana, at first, the range of Vedana starts to kind of shrink into neutral. That which is unpleasant begins to become less unpleasant. The pain in the body begins to become less unpleasant. What happens to pleasant? Maybe it gets more pleasant. You'll have to see. Maybe it gets more pleasant, maybe it opens up, maybe it gets more pleasant and then more neutral. But there's a kind of collapsing of the range. Vedana gets less intense. But it doesn't even just stop there because it it goes beyond neutrality. Let's say I have a pain in my ankle. I really follow this and I really follow this and I, I get skillful at doing this. And the pain becomes neutral. might even get pleasant for a while and then go to a deeper kind of neutrality. After a while, even the sensations will stop appearing to consciousness. They will fade, they will dissolve. While I'm paying attention to that part of the body, I'm looking right at it, and it goes through this uh, transformation, this metamorphosis, by virtue of me exercising a certain kind of relationship in the way that I'm looking at it. While I'm paying attention, it's not a matter of getting distracted or covering it over with something else. While I'm looking at it, all I'm doing is conscious of the relationship, transforming the relationship, letting go of the clinging. I'm looking at it, looking at it, looking at it, letting go of the clinging, and something happens to it. What does that imply? What on earth is going on there? Is, could that, is that an important thing to question? Something so mysterious and radical right there. The experience, not just even just the Vedana, but the experience. Remember, Vedana also has this translation of sensation. The experience is dependent on my clinging. So when we use this word samudaya, what is it that what are the origination and dissolution factors that 
technical words. What is it that gives rise to something or not? Usually in the commentaries, the, the, they just say, Vedana comes from contact. In other words, whenever there's a contact of the mind with something, of the senses with something, there's Vedana. It, basically it's saying, like, whenever there's an experience, there's Vedana. Is that the total truth? Is that the total truth? No thing, no experience exists independent of the mind and independent of the way the mind has built it and has built it through its relationship to it. If I look even more, where are the boundaries? Where is the dividing line between the Vedana and the clinging? If I really look at this, at first, like as I go right back to the beginning, first it seems obvious, this is the Vedana, this is the reaction. When I go really deep, where is the boundary line? Is there a boundary line? Are we really dealing with things in the world that are separate? Things in ex- Are there really such things as separate things? For a thing to be a thing, it needs to be a separate thing. Are there really separate things? I begin to see, of course, the clinging depends on the Vedana. I need to be clinging to something, and yet the Vedana depends on the clinging. There's a mutual dependency there. Which comes first? How deep can this go? If I really let this get more and more subtle, more and more follow uh, as possible, as I let go of clinging, things get calmer, and I can pick up on subtler levels of clinging, and let go, and let go, and let go. And how deep could this go? actually the whole structure of our world, the whole structure of our experience begins to unravel. Time, space, objects, the whole thing begins. How deep could this go? You know, reading a lot recently about modern physics, I'm really, really uh, finding it so touching and and beautiful and and, uh, delightful and exciting. Reading about atoms and and, and the investigation into the nature of atoms. And of course, atoms were an idea that go back, you know, millennia, the Greeks and the... the, uh, even in ancient India, etc., the idea of physical matter being you know, fundamental building blocks of matter, the atom. And then finally they found them. They found atoms, Rutherford and all these people at the beginning of the 19th century, 20th century, found atoms, great. And then they began to go inside atoms. What's the, what's the real fundamental reality? And so it's got a nucleus and it's got an electron, electrons that go the orbit round the nucleus. Great. And there was a model for the atom. It seems, okay, these are real things, they're real, and then they go a little bit deeper. And then suddenly, suddenly, it's a lot more mysterious, a lot more radical, the nature of the reality, the nature of the truth, than it first seemed. It's not that simple. And uh, and proton, neutron, electron, it's actually not even a thing. You can't, we can't even talk about it as a thing, as an object. Can it actually say it has this real position? or this real location, or this real uh, momentum, or this real mass even, or energy, or duration, or at this time, or whatever. None of that independent of the observer. In the notion of a particle, of a fundamental building, which just loses its reality in the terms that we usually take to mean reality, to feel reality intuitively. 
talk about this or that building block is just a kind of tendency to exist. can't really say it exists or doesn't exist. It's a tendency to exist, a tendency to happen. So through that, beginning, through the physics, beginning to see the whole fundamental intuitive structure of reality. It's not what it seems. It's, qu- it's questioned. It's not true, really. And similarly in the Dharma, similarly in the Dharma, Vedana as simple units, simple moments, I say this moment of experience, this building block of experience, that's a very, very helpful level to see it at that level. This is the, the moment, this is the experience, this is the Vedana, this is the reaction. What can I do with that? It's a fuse point of a certain amount of dukkha. And, helpful as it is, it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. So what's the reaction to that? I don't know how that sounds. No, it's a long talk, I'm almost done. What's the reaction? Oh dear, how inconvenient. I wish it was simpler. Look at all that that I have to do. <laughs> I don't know. Or, wow, wow. To me, it, you know, I, it's really exciting to me. It's really exciting. I've seen, I've been investigating, I've seen the same thing over and over, and it's still as exciting to me today as it was the first time I saw it. Something there in that thing, if I can, I do I see? This is a question for you. Do you see that what we're talking about here at this level, the level of the freedom that that implies? Because even that may not be obvious. I'm aware that that may not be obvious. But if that's true about the nature of reality, do you see what an unbelievably radical level of freedom that implies? I know it's not always obvious. We're understanding something about Vedana and about reality. So the simple view is, is great and it will unfold a degree of freedom. But when we begin to see the emptiness, a whole other level of freedom, a whole other level begins to open up. It's more of a mystical level. It's more of a mystical level of freedom. But I've arrived at it through very clear experimentation, you could say, with my, with my mindfulness, with my observation, with my questioning, out of my own experience. It's something we can see for ourselves. And it's really radical. You know, Neil Spohr, he was one of the uh, founders of quantum physics, he said, those who are not shocked when they first come across quantum theory cannot possibly have understood it. It's similar at this level uh, of, of dharma and emptiness we're talking about. You can't possibly have understood it if it's not like... Whew, similar to what we call dependent arising and emptiness. So, all this... The, the Buddha said, the dharma is ehipasiko. It means come and see for yourself. It's, it's to be seen for oneself. All this that we're talking about, all these different levels, I can follow this and see it for myself, see it unfold for myself, see it reveal for myself. But it needs, probably it will need a certain kind of sustained way of looking, sustained way of looking that reduces clinging, that will unfold this particular level. And like I said at the beginning, maybe not now for this whole retreat, maybe not Vedan at all, and that's fine, that's completely fine. 
But if never interested in that level, why? Why? Why would I be never interested in that? Someone just the other day in a casual conversation said, I don't like to ask I don't really like to ask deep questions about reality. It's not who it's not how I am. Is it really not how you are? Or is it that something has stifled and smothered and constricted and inhibited and veiled over my natural my natural love of inquiry, my natural uh, unfoldment of, of the being, the energy that, that wants the truth, the deep truth? Sometimes we don't, we're not really that interested, but in no judgment, a question is like, if not, why not? Something's going on that there's a not there. Something's going on, it's a whole other talk, I'm not going to get into it. But it's a shame, you know, we live a life, Buddha said, all this is unreal. All this is unreal. We live a life with a lot of assumptions about what's real and we react to that life and we suffer in relationship to it. And then to go through a life and not actually have seen that maybe it wasn't quite what I thought it was. And yet we can discover, we absolutely can and we love to discover. So maybe not now and that's fine, you can park it for later. But there's something in this realm, at some point, at some point in in our journey, that's so uh, beautiful to discover, so possible, so available, so transformative. So let's have a bit of quiet together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.